It was earlier this month, I'm sure you're aware, that a ship got stuck in the ice in the Antarctic. There, I think, were about 50 tourists and a crew of 20. It seemed to be on the nightly news every evening, often the lead story, and, and they were stuck there for a number of days, and I think it was a Chinese icebreaker came to the rescue, and just after a day or so, that ship got stuck, and then the, the Russians sent a ship in order to rescue the, the tourists, and, and that ship got struck. And then the Australians, they sent one of their icebreakers, confident that they could free this ship and the tourists on board, and that ship got struck as well. And eventually a Chinese helicopter had to evacuate all 50 of these tourists upon the boats. And I I found this story somewhat interesting and compelling as we saw all these rescue attempts and these failed rescue attempts. And as I mentioned, it was all over the news for quite some time. But as I watched and kind of observed these events unfold, what I found interesting is the question that was not asked. Why are they trying to rescue these people? I mean, it's an incredible expense, I imagine, to send ship after ship and eventually helicopter. But it never even occurred to anyone, at least in the news coverage that I saw, to say, to ask why. Should we actually even try to do this? Should we actually bear the expense to rescue them? No one asked that question. I think it's good that they asked, did not ask that question. Because we know in, from within us that human life has value. That there has dignity and worth found in human life. And so it made no sense to ask. Of course it's worth it. There's humans out there. We understand all of us the sanctity of human life. Which is why the blackest and bleakest moments of history are the great tragedies when human life is lost. I know the, the greatest difficulties I've had as a pastor is, is performing a funeral for a six-year-old girl. Or a funeral for a single mother leaving behind a seven-year-old girl as she died in a senseless car accident. Or a funeral for a a boy who lived but three hours. Incredibly difficult. Precisely because human life is so valuable. And we think about our own history. We think about 9-11 and when 2,792 Americans were killed in one day. Or we think about the earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010 when 100 million Haitians were killed in a day. Or we think about the tsunami that hit Indonesia in 04 when a quarter million people were killed in just a matter of minutes. And the world, uh, uh, one voice has this massive outcry. And we begin, all of us, regardless of political affiliation or even religious beliefs, we begin to sacrifice to help those who have survived these great tragedies because all of us know within us that there is nothing more valuable than all creation than human life. It is indeed worth, worthy of value and dignity and worth. If there's something that seems we all can agree on, it would be this. But unfortunately, I'm not sure we can all agree upon it. Or as we've already stated, it was on January 22nd in 1973 when the Supreme Court made its ruling of Roe versus Wade in America, giving women a constitutional right to abort their babies. And sex that time, the last 41 years, 56 million Americans have been killed through abortion. 56 million. 4,000 every day. A 9-11 type tragedy has been occurring every day for 41 years in the abortion clinics in America. An earthquake occurs every month in America. A Haitian-sized earthquake 
120,000 children die in abortion clinics. A tsunami occurs every two months in America when a quarter million Americans are aborted every two months. We wash them away. We destroy them. 22% of all pregnancies in America end in abortion. That's one out of every five children in America who are conceived and viable will not be born. One baby every 26 seconds for 41 years. What I find interesting is that the issue does not seem to go away. I think that many who are in favor of abortion thought that Roe would end the debate, that this would become the settled law of the land, and and given enough time, the the country would become pro-choice. And yet this issue continues to be central, doesn't it? It can be central whenever we elect a a representative or a president. It becomes central whenever we discuss a Supreme Court nominee. It seems to be at the heart of our culture and continues to be so. Pastor Andy Davis said abortion continues to stand in front of America screaming like a victim pleading to be saved. It simply will not go away. It seems America has a very unsettled conscience about abortion. In fact, for the first time ever, at least in the last 41 years, more Americans are pro-life than pro-choice. In fact, the the youngest generation are the most pro-life generation that we have ever seen before. And it may be precisely because of what Lisa told us, the advent of the ultrasound. And then we begin to see what's actually in the womb and people become to wake up to what we are doing. This is a baby in the womb. This is a child in the womb. And we could consider vast scientific evidence that would prove that point. But we could also go to scripture and consider bountiful scriptural evidence that describes to us what this is in the womb, that it is a child. One passage in particular I appreciate is in Luke chapter 1 in verse 39 when the Bible says in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now I ask you, what makes a woman a mother? She has a child. We think that Mary perhaps has been carrying Jesus for but a matter of weeks, certainly in her first trimester. And Elizabeth has enough sense to understand that Mary already is a mother. In fact, I love the next verse in, in verse 44. It says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And so we have John there, maybe in the second or third trimester. And what is John doing in his mother's womb? But he is leaping, and not only leaping, but leaping this great prophet because of the great delight of the presence of his Messiah. It almost seems to me to be less a meeting of Mary and Elizabeth than a meeting of unborn Jesus and unborn John as they rejoice in each other's presence. The Bible is very clear. It's God's estimation as to what is going on in a mother's womb, and therefore I believe it is the most morally outrageous, vicious, and sinful practice that we do in the name of freedom in this land and, and in probably most, at least the Western countries in this world, this, this uh, abortion. And unfortunately, the unborn are not the only casualties, as, as Lisa told us. One of their, their three tenets is they, 
They do a recovery ministry for women who have gone through abortion. You see, abortion not only destroys children, but it scars women and the men who support them and the grandparents who demand these abortions and the friends who go along with it. It leaves these impacts upon them. I have read that one third of, one out of three American women will at some point have an abortion in their life. One out of six of those women would consider themselves to be a born again Christian. Which means to me that there is, we can say with almost certainty, that there are some in this room who have experienced this tragedy. Whether it be a woman or a man who encouraged it or parents who demanded it or friends who supported it. And perhaps this is a burden that no one knows, something that you carry with you. And I cannot presume today when you are here hearing these gospel truths what's going on in your heart and in your mind as you bear these scars. I would like to tell you this morning that the gospel is the best news in the world for those who carry the pain of abortion. I would like to tell you that the very center of what we believe is recorded for us in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All sinners. And that God forgives completely. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You here this morning who are in Christ, whatever your sin, it has been taken from you and it has been cast as far away from you as it can be. God would speak through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45 saying, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. And so I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of God's word for every Christian, Christ has paid the price of your abortion or whatever role you had in that. He has borne that on himself. And so I can declare to you, as Paul does in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now, what is it, church? No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. So God does not look at you and see you with a big letter A. Your abortion does not define you. Jesus defines you. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ in you. He forgives completely. And he heals entirely. He does not just simply want to forgive you and yet let you live a life in pain and regret. He wants to give you peace and joy. He wants to plant that in your heart. He does not want to let the pain of the past rob you of the peace of the present. As we already saw this morning, he looks to the woman who anoints his feet and says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, doesn't look over them, doesn't minimize them. He says, No, she is full of sin. Her sins, which are many, are what? Are forgiven. And then he said to her, to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
You see, God wants His peace to be our possession. He wants to turn our mourning into dancing. He wants to give us beauty instead of ashes. He heals entirely. And so I tell you this morning that God has come to save sinners, no matter what your sin is. This is what He does. This is why we praise Him for the grace in which we have received, even for those who have been active or participated in some way in in aborting a baby. But the reality is, is that abortion not only impacts the unborn and it not only impacts mothers, but friends, I, I think that abortion impacts our entire culture. I think it changes us. I think it even comes into the church. And what I mean by that is I think abortion has impacted the way we understand children, our view of children. Planned Parenthood, which performs 40% of the abortions in America, um, excuse me, it was the largest provider of abortion in America. It receives 40% of its funding from the U.S. government. Um, has this slogan, you've heard it, every child a wanted child. And you see, the idea behind that is that now with the availability of abortion, you get to decide whether you have you want this baby or not. This baby now, you're now in a position to decide whether this baby is worth having or not. The child then becomes a commodity on which you now get to assess, a cost perhaps, in which you get to avoid. And this this idea does not stop when the baby is born. It continues after the baby is born. And we continue as a culture to assess children and, 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 and think of them as burdens when the Bible presents an incredibly different picture for us. In fact, this idea has even invaded our scholarly community. That's perhaps no surprise to you. But Dr. James Watson, who discovered the double helix of the DNA structure, in other words, he's not some fringe scientist, has suggested, quote, if a child were not declared alive until three days after birth, then the doctor could allow the child to die if the parents so choose and save a lot of misery and suffering. I believe, he says, this is the only rational, compassionate attitude to have. Or his partner, Dr. Francis Crick, said, quote, No newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests, and it, that if it fails these tests, it forfeits its right to live, end quote. Dr. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, argues that if a child is born with certain diseases, to allow the parents to kill him so that they could replace him with a normally healthy child would be morally right. And so we see this invading a scholarly community. We see it invading the universities. We see it invading our culture. In fact, it's not just uh, uh, hiding out in the corners. It's, it's, in, it's everywhere we look. It's everywhere. So we see birth rates drop. And now today, what, what would be unthinkable some time ago, this idea that we're voluntarily childlessness, that couples marry and they decide, well, we're just not going to have kids. And they choose to avoid children because they don't want children to interfere in their lives or their goals or their plans. I appreciate what Dr. Al Mohler said, the president of Southern Seminary. He said, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Joe and Deb Shum of Atlanta aren't worried about baby-proofing their house or buying a car seat. As a matter of fact, the couple doesn't ever intend to have children, and they are proud of their childlessness. According to the newspaper's report, quote, the shums are part of a growing number of couples across the country for whom kids don't factor into the marriage equation. 
Moeller continues saying, the Shums don't want kids to get in the way of their lifestyle. They enjoy cruising the Georgia mountains on their matching Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They love their gourmet kitchen outfitted with the very latest stainless steel appliances and trendy countertops. Deb Shum explains, quote, if we had kids, we would need a table where the kids could do homework, end quote. So in other words, children don't fit into her interior design plans. You'd have to actually get a table for them to do homework. And you see how this attitude is pervasive in our culture. One woman wrote that parenthood isn't part of her plan for motherhood doesn't fit her schedule. She says, I complete in triathlons. My husband practices martial arts. We both have fulfilling careers. We travel the world. We enjoy family and friends. For others, the, the issue is financial. One woman said, what would the return, and referring to children, what would the, I quote, what would the return be on the investment. Are there any laws that require my children to pay for my nursing home when I am old? Are they going to be a sufficient hedge against poverty and loneliness? This is what is happening in our land. These children have become things that we assess economies, uh, uh, commodities in which we value or don't. Now, please don't mishear me. I am not speaking of the great tragedy of sterility, which we see throughout Scripture and many people struggle with, and it's a great hardship and burden, and I'm in no way considering that. But it seems to me that God has given us marriage partly in order for us to have children. It's not to say that you have to have as many children as another family, but it seems this is God's intent. I finished Al Mohler's article when he said, this anti-natalist philosophy has infected the Christian church. I fully expect non-Christians to think and act as unbelievers. Nevertheless, I'm perplexed by Christians who seem to believe that marriage and reproduction can be separated while glorifying God in the marital bond. We are commanded to receive children as joy, as God's gift, and raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It seems to me an increasing emphasis today that, that children are decided. We just kind of, we, we think them to be burdens and well, I don't want to have them. And we have this emphasis on the cost of them. I, I have been told by U.S. News and will report that it, it will cost me 1.5 million to raise a child to the age of 18 per child, which means I'm in trouble. Right? <laughs> I don't know if we need to pass the plates or what we have to do. I'm not even going to do the math, by the way. No one tell me what that adds up to. But you see the spirit behind the report is look how much they cost. Are you sure you want one of these? It's going to impact your life. It's going to take your money from you. And now we see, and we even laugh about this, but I would caution you, maybe you have to think about it. And we have this, August seems to be the national holiday for parents as children go back to school. And we have commercials of fathers skipping down the aisle as they throw notebooks into the shopping cart and with a song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, playing in the background. This seems to be our attitude. Now, I'm not, I'm, listen, raising children hard? Yes. And I don't even have teenagers yet. It's difficult. It's difficult. I'm not minimizing that. We make sacrifices. I'm not saying we don't. What I am saying, what I'd like to give you this morning, what I'd like to really plant into your heart and it would never leave you, is God's understanding of children. We see him explain what he thinks of them in Psalm 127. This is a song of ascent. 
the pilgrims would sing this as they ascended Jerusalem on their national feast and, and they would have their families together and I think they would probably begin to think about their heritage and as we see quickly that children comprise a home. You notice this in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now when he says build a house, I don't think he's talking about four walls and a roof. I think he's talking about a household, a family. I believe this because David once said that he wants to build God a house. David realized he lives in this massive palace and God's out living in a tent. And David says, I'm going to build God a house. And then God says to David through the prophet Nathan, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But then the question is, wait a second. The whole point is David already has a house. What do you mean, God, you're going to build him a house? Well, the next verse, he says, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you a a lineage. I'm going to give you descendants. And so God says, the house which I'm building you is a, a household and it's made up of children and the the psalmist says unless the lord builds it those who who raise up a household are going to do so in vain they're going to do it in vain which is not to say that that we just are passive and sit down and let god do all the building you notice it says no unless the lord builds a house those who build it labor in vain so that our labor is understood we will labor in building this household as we teach and protect and love and nurture and admonish and provide but our labor will not work if god is not blessing it if god is not in it and it will lead to broken marriages and rebellious kids and a meaningless a house full of meaningless trinkets with no real or deep relationships in the home the labor will be in vain and therefore i think as parents and grandparents we ought to pray that God would be in our building, in our household. I think if we actually believe that unless the Lord builds it, it's going to be in vain, it would drive us to pray frequently for ourselves and our spouse and for our kids. You see, children comprise a home. Secondly, you notice that children are a reward. We're just going to have to jump down to verse 3 for time's sake. It says, children, behold. I like that word, by the way, behold. Some translations drop it. I don't know why they do. I think we should probably use this word more often. Um, I may use it tonight. Behold, dinner is ready or something like that, right? (laughs) Behold, it's time for bed. Um, It's like, hey, pay attention, right? Listen up. I'm going to tell you something that's important. You ought to listen. I'm going to tell you something wonderful. Lord, what is it that you want to tell us? Well, look what he says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're an inheritance. They have immense value and worth. He goes on and says, the fruit of the womb is a reward. They're not burdens. They're not interruptions with your other plans. They're rewards from God. They're an inheritance from God. And you see how abortion ruptures these two ideas, reward and children. It redefines children as a product to gauge, a cost to avoid. And not, not just abortion. We often do this when we look at our children and we don't understand them to be blessings. You ought to be very careful how you speak to your children and about your children. I would encourage you not to refer to your youngest child as an accident. So many do. I once sat at a table with friends of ours and they, they were telling us their lifelong plans and they said we got married early and had kids right after we were married so we could raise them up and get them out of the home so we could actually start living our life. But, they said, along came our youngest son 10 years after our, our last child and now, and now we can't do that plan anymore. And the great trouble in my heart was their youngest son was sitting at the table with us. Just hearing this from his parents. If you have an unplanned child, it is not an accident. And you ought to say, mommy and daddy decided not to have kids anymore, which is our decision to make, but God knew better. And he gave us you. He blessed us with 
you. You ought to tell your children, you are a blessing. God has given you to me. You ought to communicate that to them non-verbally as well. You ought to spend time with them and, and play with them. I spent seven years as a youth pastor, and I never found a single youth who was distraught and mad at dad because they were poor. But I've encountered so many kids who had terrible relationships with their fathers, even though he provided everything they could have dreamed of, but he was never home always running around working to provide for them. We ought to let them know you are more important than my hobbies and my interests because I'm going to spend time with you. In fact, you see, it says that they are a heritage from the Lord. The Lord gives them to us. I think we've become so naturalistic that we think that that children are just the, the byproduct of these natural occurrences. But I don't believe that to be the case. I believe God is actively involved in creating every person who ever lived. I'm not the only one. John Calvin, in commentating on this passage, says, the majority of mankind dream that after God had once ordained this at the beginning, children were thenceforth begotten solely by secret instinct of nature. God ceasing to interfere in the matter. With view of correcting this error, Solomon calls children the heritage of God, the fruit of the womb, his gift. The meaning then is that children are not the fruit of chance, but that of God. And it seems good to him, he distributes to every man his share of them. That God creates them, which is exactly what Psalm 139 says. If you just turn over there for a second, you notice what the psalmist says in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You did this. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is a, a work of God. And, and what is it? What happens? Well, look at verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other ways, the God, way God creates children in the womb propels praise to him and, and, and compels us to worship him in awe. And just think about how much more we know than and David knew when he wrote Psalm 139. And we think about a, a sperm and an egg and, and unite together, right? There's going to be no picture, so don't worry. But they come together, right? And, and what happens? You know, in three weeks, you have a sperm and an egg. They come together. In three weeks, that baby's heart is beating and it's circulating its own blood. And two weeks after that, it has fingers and brain waves. Within six weeks of conception, that child is moving around. Within 12 weeks, 12 weeks, less than three months, all of the organs in that child are present and functioning, and the baby can cry. Now imagine at this time to insert a tool or take a pill and to end that life, this gift being made by God. This is when most abortions occur, we are told, it is the optimal time for dismemberment and removal. I would encourage you to instead see children as God's creation that ought to fill you with awe and wonder and praise of our God. Number three, children establish our legacy. Note verse four of Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. He says children are like arrows. I think what he means by that is that children will project your influence. Just as you pull back an arrow and let it fly, arrows are, are meant to be aimed and released. I think that's the design of our child rearing, isn't it? Is to raise them up to the point where they can go out, right? We can let them go and they can live godly and righteous lives in love with Jesus, right? A sword bearer can only project his influence as, as far as his arm can reach. But one full of arrows can project his influence for generations and generations to come. He can create a legacy. He can create a nation. We're to have these children as arrows that we may let them fly. I love what Jim Elliott said. He said something very like that great missionary 
who said, Grieve not, then, if your son seems to desert you. When writing to his mother. Remember how the psalmist described children? He, he said they were an inheritance from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows but for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. This is what children are for, to, to have a legacy for godliness and righteousness. And by the way, please understand that if you do not have natural children, it does not mean you don't get to leave a legacy. Did Paul leave a legacy? He who had neither children nor wife. Did Jesus leave a legacy? He who had no natural children. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13, the Bible says uh, Jesus refers to the children that God has given me. Paul would refer to Timothy and Titus in separate occasions as his true sons in the faith. He would write to the Corinthian church and say, I admonish you as my beloved children. And so God gives us these opportunities to have this legacy in the lives of many, uh, our children and those that we are able to minister to as we see both Jesus and John, uh, Paul show us that example. Lastly, consider that children bring joy. Verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Some translations say, happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. Sometimes blessed and happy are, are, are translated from the same word. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God is constantly leaking blessing or happiness with children. So in Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Or Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Or Genesis 17, as for Ishmael, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply. Or in Genesis 26 of Isaac, he said, fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring. Of Israel leading into the promised land, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 7, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you. You see what the Bible is constantly telling us is that happiness and joy and blessing are accompanied with children. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 113, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. I ask you then, where does this mentality come that children are a burden? That children are a cost? The Bible tells us something vastly different than what our culture tells us. Children are God's blessings to us. In fact, as we end our time this morning, I actually sat down this weekend and just thought, just got a paper out and a pen, and I thought... How are children blessings? And in what way do they bless me? I came up with 30. I'm going to give you only 18, okay? All right? But you can do this. Go home and grab a pen. How are children blessings to me? That was a wonderful exercise. Thank you for paying me to do that, by the way. It's just the best job in the world. Hold on. Here we go. Number one, children show God's glory. Your children are made in the image of God. The image of God resides in your home. Look at them and see the likeness of God in them. And number two, children show you your sin by mimicking you. Because they pick up your sin habits far easier than they pick up your godly habits, don't they? Isn't that a great blessing? Right? That you can see your blind spots. And you see and you think, you see that sin, right? It's like, oh, now I know where you got that. 
Number three, children give you opportunities to make disciples. They want to learn from you. They do. They just naturally want to learn. They want to love what you love. They're drawn to the things in which you're drawn to. They're going to watch you. They're going to see if the Bible's ever open in your lap. Does daddy or mommy love to read the Bible? They want to know if your head is bowed. Does daddy and mommy pray to God? They're going to watch and observe. You get to lead them to know Christ. Number four, children give you the opportunity to obey God. I think of all the commands that God had opened up to me that were not opened up to me until I became a father. Now I have all these wonderful, incredible opportunities to follow God in new and unique ways. Number five, children give you the opportunity to learn scripture because they will ask you questions, won't they? Right? It was last night we were at family worship. We were studying the story of, of Jesus uh, speaking to the Pharisees about, uh, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar and render to Caesar what is Caesar and God unto God. So we just had an incredible discussion about it. And in fact, I can't even get through a verse until one of my children asks a question. What does that mean? And what does that mean? And what does this mean? You want to know the answer. And it's going to drive you into the word. And they go, why, 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 right? And eventually you say, because God said so, right? <laughs> and, then, and then they say, well, why did God say so, right? And it drives you to God's word, doesn't it? Number six, children give you the opportunities for prayer, don't they? When they break your heart, when they confuse you, it does not lead you in desperation to prayer. When they fill you with joy and happiness, does delight, does it not lead you to prayer and thanks? Number seven, children give you the opportunity for patience, right? Enough said, right? Okay, you understand that? Number eight, children give you the opportunity to give grace in your life. God has given you grace, not so you can wrap your arms around it and say, aren't I full of grace? Thank you, God, for my grace. He gives you grace so that you may be so overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God that you may extend it to those who sin against you. And your children will sin against you, thus giving you opportunity after opportunity to show the grace of God into their lives. Number nine, children destroy self-focus. They will. They will destroy your self-focus. You come home tired and there is math to teach and there are dishes to wash and there are teeth to brush and there are spankings to confer, right? There are diapers to change and and there are more diapers to change. There are midnight feedings and ER visits and vomit in the carpet and it's all opportunities for you to stop thinking about yourselves and think, how may I bless others? How may I live for others? Number 10, children will love you like no one else. I don't know, do you like to be loved? I see it in my children's eyes. They look at daddy with a gleam in their eye. They, They don't know better. I don't know what's going on, but they love me. In fact, I, I'm, I'm 39 years old. And probably the one person that I want to hear say, I'm proud of you, is probably my father. I don't know if I'll ever outgrow that. I don't know why that is. I love my parents like no other. My children love me. Do you want to be loved? Children give you this wonderful opportunity to receive love and to give love. Number 11, children bring out manhood and womanhood in you. You have kids, you become a different person. You have children, you, you all of a sudden, women, this nurturing just comes out of you, this desire to care for them. I'll tell you, my girls, interesting enough, have, have made me into a man. I had girls, and all of a sudden, I want to be a protector and a provider, and I want to honor them and esteem them and shield them. It makes me want to rise up and protect my home. Number 12, children teach us about God's love. We spoke of this in Sunday school. 
How many of us think that we get God's love based upon our performance and I'm doing well and so he really loves me now and now I'm kind of messing up and so God doesn't love me as much and then we have kids and then we think, oh, that's how God loves me. Regardless of what I do because I'm his son. See, they teach us about God's love. We try to drill this into our children. Every night when we put them down, I ask at least one of them, I say, why does daddy love you so much? And they have learned the answer is because I'm your son or because I'm your daughter. I don't want them to think because I was a good boy today. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's because of who you are. In fact, my, my three-year-old daughter, Magdalene, who just turned four, she used to say, I would ask her, Magdalene, why does daddy love you so much? And she would say, because you're my daughter. <laughs> it was so cute. I never corrected her. I just loved it. She now knows the difference. One of you kids told her not to say that. But she, she they... they we understand how it is that God loves us because I'm God's son and I will sin and I will do well, but God will love me forever because of who I am, not because of what I do. And children teach us that. Number 13, children make you laugh, don't they? They just do funny, crazy things. They're a constant source of happiness. You want to laugh? Ask my children, what does the fox say? Okay? (laughs) And, uh, some of you understand that, and, and they, will, they will erupt in a great, um, great concert for you, right? but they give, I mean, they just do crazy things. They're hysterical. They make you laugh. When a child walks in a room, what, people smile. There's something wrong with you. If a kid walks in a room and you frown, they're, they're there given to God to make you smile. I appreciate what the great pioneer missionary David Livingston said when he wrote to a friend saying, I hope you are playing with your children. And looking back, I have one regret, and it is that I did not feel it my duty to play with my children as much as to teach the natives. I worked very hard at that and was tired out at night. Now I have none to play with. So my good friend, play while you may. They will soon no longer be children. Number 14, cuddles, right? Snuggles, crawl into your lap, kisses. Number 15, friendship. I've done a number of weddings when a man has asked his father to be his best man. I want to be my children's friend. I want to be their father first. And sometimes friendship and fatherhood conflict and it will always default to fatherhood. But I want my children's, they are my friends. And, and by the way, my children will, will be my children forever. When we, we all die and we go to heaven, they won't call me Stephen. I, for eternity, will be called by these people, Dad, forever. My identity won't be washed away. I will be forever their dad. That is a relationship I will eternally have by God's good grace. They, they bring this friendship. Number 16, they give you a lasting legacy. You can invest your life for a great future. Spurgeon tells of a daughter who said to her father as she knelt by his deathbed, there is no greater blessing for, than for children to have godly parents. And the next said the dying father with a beam of gratitude for parents to have godly children. I think there's perhaps no greater joy when, when children are released and they fly straight. They fly as you have taught them. Number 17, children are blessings for old age. The elderly, according to Scripture, are cared for by their children financially, relationally, physically, spiritually. They help deal with loneliness. And we're 18. Lastly, I think children are a strong witness for Christ. I see this in my home, that if you fathers and mothers have arrows ready to fly, you will not be ashamed when you face your enemy at the gates. 
In this day in which teenhood, teenage rebellion is common and broken homes are the norm, a home where the children are valued as God's gifts, where the blessing of God is obvious, will be a beacon of light in a dark world. So I commend to you God's view of children this morning. They are his blessings. Stand with me against our culture, which would deny this truth. Celebrate children that the blessings that they are. And even though they are great and abundant blessings, there is a greater blessing. And it is the fact that through Jesus, I have become God's child. And you have too. We have been adopted into his family. And God, who made all things, is now our father. And Jesus calls us his brother. We have done this not because we are good people, but because Christ has died for our sins. He took all of it upon himself, no matter what the sin is, no matter how terrible it is. He paid for that and three days later rose from the grave. And he declares to us, if we would bow our knee in faith and submission to him, we shall be forgiven of all our sins and be invited to a relationship with God. In fact, God would become our Abba Father. Maybe this morning you don't know God as your father. I tell you, on the authority of God's word, you do not have to work your way into his family. You simply have to receive it. He will make you his son or his daughter today if you would place your faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I invite you this morning, friends, to be saved. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great and bountiful gifts to us. We praise you for all that you have done in our lives. And especially we praise you for the children in which you have given us and grandchildren and nephews and nieces and spiritual children that we are able to pour our lives into. We thank you for that gift. And will you help us as your people with great compassion and love in our heart for those who would oppose us that we would not waver in our affirmation that those who are unborn and that those who are born are your gifts to us. And we thank you mostly that we are your children through the work of Christ. That is the truth that we shall forever rejoice in for you for eternity. My God, our God, shall be our Father. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.